Great to see all of you and those of you who are online as well. Uh, welcome to our service, whether you're watching right now or you're watching on demand. Uh, we are in our fourth week of our series through Romans. We actually, we've done four series through Romans. We're in the fourth series called The Fellowship of the Gospel. Uh, this covers the last section of Romans, Romans chapter 12 through 16. And today we're looking at a passage that is, uh, well, one of the early church fathers reading this passage said, it's a very disturbing passage. I'll explain why he said that in a little bit. Uh, a commentator co going along the same lines of finding this passage disturbing uh, is often quoted for saying, the, the problem with this passage isn't in understanding it. It's in the clarity of what it says. And, uh, and it does create some disturbing thoughts, you know, in terms of what the Apostle Paul is actually saying here. Uh, so I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Romans chapter 13, and we're going to look at the first 17, seven verses, and uh, we do this every week. We open our Bibles because we believe that understanding the Bible and your purpose in life, it doesn't have to be a mystery. We can open our Bibles. We can understand it, even passages that may stretch us in some ways or cause us to have to read in a, in a little bit of a more thoughtful uh, type of way. So we're going to pray as we always do, for the Holy Spirit to illuminate His Word to us. And the prayer that, uh, that I'm praying today is based on Jeremiah chapter 29. Um, I also want to encourage you, we're going to be doing prayers with the people a little bit later. We'll be praying about the Ukrainian situation, um, the situation in Ukraine. And um, I just want to encourage you to be praying about that. It's not uh, theoretical. It's not something that's way out there. We have one of our members who has family members there. And uh, so please keep, keep that whole situation in the world and world leaders in, uh, in your prayers in the coming days and weeks. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for who you are, that when we seek you with our whole hearts, we will find you. We want to find you. We want to find you. We want to know you more. We look to you and we ask that you would illuminate your word by your Holy Spirit. Grant us a deeper understanding of who you are. Grow our faith as we trust your heart and the work of your hands. Give us hope in your plans. Guide us to walk in your ways and to follow wherever you lead. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we're going to... Um, Watch as one of our five ochres uh, reads the passage or follow along in your own Bibles. Let's watch the video. Romans 13, 1 through 7. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for, for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants, who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe 
Taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. All right, you may have, you may have heard some of the phrases in there that can create some, some kind of disturbing uh, thoughts. Uh, I, I have a few of them here listed on, just a second, excuse me. Uh, listed here, uh, the authorities that exist have been established by God. You know, under a lot of circumstances, that's perfectly fine. Uh, but in some, you may wonder about that. The one in authority is God's servant for your good. And then this one, rulers hold no terror for those who do right. Now, I want you to, to think about this early church father, uh, one of the earliest of the church fathers, uh, the year is 202 A.D. His father, his name is Origen. His father is a professor at a university, teaches literature, and uh, is a professing Christian, and, and very open about his Christianity at a time when the Roman Empire wasn't friendly towards Christians, let's put it that way. It wasn't like that there was this persecution that was happening of Christians at all times and in all places, but persecutions would pop up. I mean, really significant persecutions would pop up in different parts of the empire. And so in 202, the Roman emperor at the time, Emperor Septimius Severus, didn't like what he saw from Christians, so he just ordered, he said, any Roman citizen who professes to be a Christian needs to be executed. And so they arrested Origen's father, and they beheaded him. So Origen reading this passage is like, what, 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 what do you mean the rulers hold no terror for those who do right? And said, this is a very disturbing passage. How can this apply to the Roman Empire? How could this apply to the empire that has killed my dad just for believing in Christ. So just think about this passage. Um, does this apply back during Nazi Germany? Does this apply uh, in Stalinist Russia? It's gonna, is it going to apply in the future Russia? Um, does this apply if you're living under the Taliban? Does this apply in North Korea? Were these and are these servants of God, governments established by God? Here's a, here's a question that this passage begs for us uh, to ask, and it's the one that we're really going to focus on. Does Romans 13, 1 through 7 demand unqualified obedience to the government? Because it sounds that way. To say you follow the government, you do what it says no matter what. It's one of many passages that call Christians to be good citizens, to be people who obey the law. This passage and others like it calls, call us to not just be good citizens and obey the law, but call us to respect, honor, and pray. Not, this passage doesn't talk about prayer, but other passages that Apostle Paul gives us, he tells us, and Peter tell us to pray for the governmental authorities. That's, that's the base, okay? Uh, I'm not arguing with that at all. I mean, I'm not going to argue with that at all. I don't think we should. Uh, last night, one of our members talked to me after the service, and she told me a little story that I just, I just got to throw in here. Uh, she said that 
that her father uh, got to the point where he was uh, really, his driving was getting very, very dangerous. He, his reactions were slowing down. He was 90 years old. He just wasn't, he wasn't driving well, and his daughters were really afraid for him. He said, I'm fine. I know where I'm going when I die. They said, we're more concerned about who else you're going to kill, you know, with the way that you're driving. So what they did was they had this plan. We're not going to tell him when his license needs to be renewed. And they kind of ran his affairs uh, to some degree, so they didn't tell him. And uh, his license expired, so they called him. One of the daughters called and said, Dad, do you want me to pick you up for church today? And he goes, no, I'm, I'm driving myself. She goes, no, your license has expired. He said, well, I'm going to drive myself anyways. So he goes to church. They're sitting in the service. And she said, the pastor is preaching on this passage, Romans 13. By the end, towards the end of the sermon, he takes out his keys, he takes off the key to this car, and he hands it to his daughter. She goes, you need a ride home? He goes, yeah, and you can just keep it. <laughs> so this, this speaks about being law-abiding citizens, that we don't stand above the law. But does it demand unqualified obedience to the government, to all governments at all times? Let me ask this a little bit different way. Does Romans 13, 1 through 7, forbid Christians from participating in or leading organized protests against a particular law or a government or certain government authorities? Does it forbid prophetic and public advocacy, you know, calling out governments, calling out leaders, calling them to account? Does it forbid civil disobedience, a kind where you purposely break a law or you refuse to comply with an unjust law in order to try to get change in society and change the laws. So those are the questions that we're going to be exploring in this you know, pretty intensely theological sermon uh, today um, with a basic understanding, though, that this passage teaches us to respect, honor, and pray for governing authorities, but does it mean that we have to do what they say under all circumstances? Now, the answers to that question or those questions has huge implications for Christians living all over the world under evil and just completely corrupt governments. Uh, it has huge implications for us as well. I mean, our, our nation is changing, and there are more and more conflicts created in our laws and ways of interpreting our laws that are making it, at times, very difficult for Christians to follow their conscience, their Christian conscience, and remain abiders of the law. Now, some of those things are still up for interpretation, still, you know, like waiting to be heard by the Supreme Court, those kinds of things, but we don't know where it's going to go and when it's going to change even more. So, this has implications for all of us. So the question is, again, does Romans 13, 1 through 7 demand unqualified obedience to the government? Does it forbid protesting or acts of civil disobedience? Now, obviously, Christians need to think about what Paul writes here when it comes to our relationship with government. So whatever else Paul is trying to communicate, the main thing is that he considers the world's governments, even the Roman government, to be legitimate and established by God. 
How? Well, in the mystery of God's sovereignty. You just, it's, you just have to understand that that statement that the government is established by God is not, it's, it's not controversial if you've read your Bible. It's like everything. God is sovereign. It means, it's not like, how did that person get in power? God is up in the heavens. How did that person get in power? <laughs> I don't know how that happened. You know, it, it, it's like, I, could, I couldn't do anything about it. All right, God is sovereign. There's no governmental power that is not in this mysterious sense of God's sovereignty established by God himself because he's at the very least allowed it to happen. So we also know that the Apostle Paul, in reading this and reading the rest of his letters, would not support a position that was taken by many Christians in his day and taken by a lot of Christians today as well where they believe that since Jesus introduced the new age, and because the old age is passing away, we live like on a different plane than everybody else. And we really don't have to pay attention to secular authorities and that sort of thing. And this, there's no way you can read this passage in any way. There's no way to read this and take that position. In fact, Paul would have stood against that because he stood against that in all kinds of different ways, comparable ways. But if he's saying you have to do everything the government says, no matter what, because it's God's will, in reality, that would go against other scripture. And it would get, go against the trajectory of other things that Paul says. For example, would Paul have stopped preaching the gospel if, he, if it was illegal to preach the gospel? Now, in Paul's life, it was never illegal to, pre to preach the gospel. Not once he left the authorities in Jerusalem. You know, in other places in the Roman Empire, you could preach the gospel. It was never, Paul wasn't imprisoned for preaching the gospel. He was, he was imprisoned because in preaching the gospel, people would trump up other charges against him, okay? People who hated him. Uh, but he was never put in prison for preaching the gospel. He's eventually executed by the emperor that he's saying is established by God. The emperor at his time is, is Nero. At the time of his death, the emperor at the time of this writing is Nero. But Paul's words, um, Paul's words could be used by a lot of people to just support the status quo, no matter how evil or corrupt a government is. And the reality is people who have a vested interest in keeping the status quo have done this. They've used Paul's words to support the status quo without really embracing anything else that Paul says. <laughs> It's like, we're going we're gonna to really lap, latch on to this, but we're not going to listen to everything else says. And just think, of, just think of so many slave-owning, church-going, Christ-professing people in our own country before slavery was um, overturned. Think of, if you know a little bit of history of Germany and the time of the Nazis, how there were Lutheran pastors, many Lutheran pastors, the state church in Germany, uh, many who fought against uh, the Nazi regime. But the majority of them either kept quiet or they would pick a passage like this and say, you just have to go along. The Nazis are evil, they're doing terrible things, but we just have to go along. And sometimes they didn't even say that they're evil. They just says we have to go along. So this passage can be used to kind of support the status quo. 
And I find it really interesting and disturbing at the same time that how many Christians use this passage inconsistently. You probably have seen this. You go back and you could really like tap into every memory, everything that you've read in the last two years. You probably have seen it happen. And so, for example, if there are people protesting uh, against something that you don't like and revolution, you know, is happening someplace in the world and you agree with what they're fighting against, this passage doesn't really come up. But when somebody's protesting and you don't like the way they're protesting or you don't like the fact that they're protesting at all or you don't like a revolution in what it's trying to do, then this passage gets used with no nuance, no explanation. It's just used inconsistently. Sometimes even, and we need to be aware of this, secular leaders, and say secular meaning not church leaders, I'm talking about governmental leaders. Governmental leaders will use this passage in order to manipulate Christians into following what they want you to do, want us to do. And we, we have to be aware of this. this. I mean, this has always happened, always happened historically. It's happening today. It will happen. It'll happen tomorrow. It'll continue being done. On the other hand, we should also be disturbed by and concerned that there's a growing number of professing Christians. I mean, when, you know, I mean there's some studies being done that, that uh, are asking people some questions about the use of violence in order to bring about change. And a growing number of professing Christians are advocating for violence to achieve political ends right here in our country right now. Oftentimes, unfortunately, based on lies or conspiracy theories or just simply avoiding just all their life they've avoided it and they're just going to keep avoiding it, avoiding the hard work of bringing about change in lawful ways. They haven't even tried that or they think other people have tried it. And so they refer to that and they say, it's, it just may come down to it. We, we, need to take, we need to be violent in order to do this. And that should, that should disturb us. So all that being said, here's the question. Does Romans 13, 1 through 7 demand unqualified obedience to the government? Does it forbid protesting or acts of civil disobedience? And my answer to both of those questions is no. You may not agree with me. That's okay. But I want to bring up some of the issues that you're going to have to wrestle with so that you don't just kind of lightly use this passage in one direction or the other. So, a couple of thoughts. The first one is this. Reality is that Paul's words in this passage, and this may surprise you, they actually undermine and subvert the authority of rulers and governments. It actually undermines. And you have to understand his day and what rulers claimed about themselves and about their governments to understand how what he was saying is way more radical than what you might think. Now, this isn't going to make the point that civil disobedience is sometimes called for. Um, my second point will really make that. But this sets, frames the issue for us a little bit. So you, you can't read this passage knowing the Bible, knowing the story of God well, without thinking, and you may not have thought of it, and you may know the Bible really well, but as soon as I say this, you're going to go, oh, of course, I should have thought of that, because that's how, we, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The Bible is always linking itself to other parts of the Bible. 
constantly. And we call it, you know, this, use this term hyperlinking to like, like you, you know, underline word that you put the cursor on and it takes you to something else. It's constantly hyperlinking to other passages, sometimes right out in the open and other times in very, very subtle ways. You cannot read this story without thinking of the story of Daniel and Nebuchadnezzar recorded in Daniel chapter 4. Now, you, you might want to turn there in your own Bibles if you want to, but I'm going I'm to have the text up here so you can just watch if you'd like to as well. Now, with Paul's thorough knowledge of Scripture, which he can quote left and right. Remember, he doesn't carry around a Bible. Paul did not go from city to city carrying around a Bible because they did not exist like this. They were scrolls, multiple scrolls. There was no one scroll that could carry the whole Bible. Paul could not carry the Bible with him. He had it in here, all right? And he can quote it left and right. He was uh, trained as a Pharisee. They would memorize whole, I mean, humongous sections of Scripture, the whole Torah, the first five books, and then many more parts of the Bible, all right? So it's all in his head, and if it wasn't in his head, he would have to go someplace. So like, I'm pretty sure Isaiah talks about, I'm going to have to go over to one of the local synagogues to look at one of the scrolls, all right? So Paul is thoroughly immersed in the Scripture. So in Daniel chapter 4, to give you a little bit of a background, the king, Nebuchadnezzar, has a dream. And it's a disturbing dream, and he wants it interpreted, so he calls in his wise men. He said, interpret my dream for me. And he's not satisfied with their explanations. So he calls Daniel, and Daniel is a, uh, at this point, I can't remember, you know, what age he is at this point, but he was brought to Babylon after Babylon came to Jerusalem and destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, took all the upper-class people, the highly educated, the leaders that weren't killed, took them with them to re-educate them. That's how the Babylonians would do it. They'd re-educate, and so they would get the benefit of all that education and leadership and everything for their, their government. And so he's one of those that have come, and he served the king well. And, uh, and Jeremiah the prophet had said that's what the Jews should do while in exile. They should serve their city well and uh, for the blessing of the city. And he's done that. And so Daniel is brought in. We pick up on Daniel chapter 4, verse 24, where Daniel says, This is the interpretation, your majesty, and this is the decree the Most High has issued against my Lord the King. Now, everything he's going to say, just that one sentence alone, would be a death sentence right there on the spot. If it weren't that he was being asked, what is the interpretation of this dream? All right, you do not talk like this to a king. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Do you see the connections with Romans 13? The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored. He's referring to something in the dream. Your kingdom will restore to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right. 
and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. All right, if you were here when we did our justice series, do you, do, you, do you see that justice and righteousness? In this case, righteousness and justice, restorative justice right next to each other. It's a theme that runs throughout the whole Bible. It may be then your prosperity will continue. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Um, when you tell a king like Nebuchadnezzar or an emperor like Nero that he is not sovereign, that only God is sovereign, and not, not just any God, one particular God, the God of the Hebrews, you have undermined his power and his authority. You've, you've, in many ways, you've subverted it, whether it's Nero or whether it's Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so I want to, you can see the parallels there pretty clearly. I, it, it, there is no doubt that while Paul is writing Romans 13, he's got the words and ideas of passages like Daniel 4 in his mind, and quite possibly Daniel 4 specifically in his mind. But I want to suggest to you that it might be more than that because this is the way Pharisees, rabbis, Jesus, Paul, we see this. This is the way they teach. They're not just like channeling the Old Testament. They are sometimes wanting the hearers to bring that Old Testament passage to the foreground. In other words, not just in the background, okay, this is what I'm thinking about as I'm writing, consciously or unconsciously. No, no. I want you to think about Daniel 4 while I'm writing this. I want you to finish the story. I'm not going to finish it for you, but I want you to finish the story. There's a particular teaching that gets a way of teaching that gets a name later among the rabbis. Um, we have historical sources that show this. Uh, but once they named it and they teach about it, you go back and you go, oh, they were already doing this in Jesus' day and before that. And oh, Jesus was doing this. And so the, the kind of teaching is what uh, later became uh, known as remez. Um, I don't have it written down, so I might be wrong about that word, but I think that's what it is. And, um, and what would happen a lot of times is a person is teaching and they want to make a point, and they want to do it in kind of a veiled way. And there might be all kinds of reasons for the veiled way. It might be because they don't want everybody to hear the real answer to a question. Uh, it might be because it would be dangerous to say it. But the people in the know go, oh, yeah, gotcha. Or it might be because you're talking to a whole crowd and you give a general answer, but there's someone in the crowd that you want to get the rest of the answer. Or it might be a way of testing someone. Okay, so you ask a rabbi a question and he might refer to a passage of scripture, but not finish it. And then you might test them, say, what was, I, what was I talking about? And if you just took it at face value, the rabbi would go, wrong. <laughs> uh, what does the rest of the passage say? And so it's a, it's, it was a method of, of teaching. And so, I don't know, I'm not speculating. 
I, I am speculating on this, but I'm not saying that you need to take this as gospel. But there may be something going on in that Roman context that keeps Paul from just coming out and saying some things. But he says it without actually saying it. Uh, I, I, I'm, I am going to suggest in a couple of weeks, in, in my sermon in a couple of weeks, that there is more going on in this letter that Paul is speaking to, and all the clues are there than what we might imagine. We think Paul is just writing this theology of his gospel. No, it's, it's pretty specific to the situation that he's talking about, but he does it differently than in other places because he's never been there. So, but he knows everything that's going on there. All right, so uh, let's look at uh, a few things from Daniel that have connections. So, the Most High is sovereign over all kings on earth and gives them to anyone who wishes. That's exactly Romans 13. That's subversive enough. Um, but continues on, your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. Okay, now it's starting to get like Nero. Um, there might be a challenge to Nero and any other government leader to acknowledge not only, not only um, that this is true, we know it, but that the leader should recognize it. And then it gets really pointed when he says, renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by doing what is kind to the oppressed. In other, Paul, in other words, if Paul has this passage in mind, is this part of it? That of course you don't follow government leaders when they are being unkind to the oppressed or when they are doing what is wrong. Of course you don't. All right. I can't answer that. You've got to be careful about those kinds of interpretations. But I'm just, I'm just suggesting that um, as something to think about. This is, at the very least, a commentary on the legitimacy and the power of the authorities. I mean, just with what he says there, subverts it by saying, you know, this emperor who in some ways thinks of himself as a god... This emperor who in parts of the empire is worshipped as a god is no god, and he is not sovereign. All right, so Paul at the very least is saying that. But he's probably also saying there are limits to the, his authority without coming out and saying it. Now, there is another passage that is much more pointed in Romans. It comes later and needs to be considered you got to read it back into here. It's a little bit more veiled. It's not quite coming right out and saying it, but in Romans 15, this is what Paul says. And again, just quoting off the top of his head, Isaiah, the root of Jesse, which is Jesus. That's what it's pointing to. It's pointing to the Messiah. The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. That's including the Romans. In him, the Gentiles, including the Romans, the non-Jews, will hope. Okay, so think about another king who heard that a Messiah king had been born and how he reacted. His name was Herod the Great, right? <laughs> like kill all the babies in Bethlehem. That's the threat that's there. Nero. You think he had any idea that Christians were teaching this? At this point, he probably doesn't even know Christians exist. He will know Christians exist in his day, but at this point he doesn't even know Christians exist probably. And if he knows they're teaching this, that is as subversive as it gets. There's one 
who will rule over all the nations, even the Roman Empire. So what's he saying without saying it? He's saying Nero's rule and Roman rule will not last for forever. It won't. And he thinks he's ruling, but he's actually, there is one who rules over him and one who will hold them into account. Paul is certainly not calling in this passage for a revolution or guerrilla action or violence or even civil disobedience against the Roman government. But this passage, without a doubt, hyperlinks to Daniel 4, and it subverts government power, while at the same time affirming the need for governments and for law and order, that they, the government offers something that we need in our world. So Michael Byrd, a commentator on Romans, he, um, he says this, he says, N.T. Wright, another commentator, contends that Romans 13, 1 through 7 is about establishing a community right under Caesar's nose in Rome that witnesses to the work of the one true God, but avoids the view that loyalty to Jesus would mean civil disobedience in a way that would just reshuffle the cards of political order. Any kind of civil disobedience in any Christians at this time, just think it's just in Rome, there's a few house churches. That's it. That's it. A few groups that fit into homes. Uh, Probably larger homes of richer people, but that's it. And, you know, so if they start you know, marching and protesting, it's, it's not going to go anywhere. Rome could cope with ordinary revolutions, but a community committed to a crucified and risen Lord living out his story and teaching, now that was dangerous. Now, fast forward a little bit. Michael Bird is an Australian biblical scholar. He, um, he comments after this, he says, I, I remember when I was a kid, my aunt and uncle, they, they, had a, uh, they had a dog that they named Nero. And he said, I thought that was the weirdest name. It's just not like a dog name. <laughs> he gives some examples of dog names, you know. And um, what he learned later in life was that in the UK, there was a tradition back in the day of naming dogs after first century emperors. Uh, so, now remember, Nero's government would eventually execute Paul, but it's been pointed out by some that little could Nero have imagined that a day would come when people would call their sons Paul and their dogs Nero. <laughs> now, last night, somebody told me, well, since I've started coming to church here, I've named my dog Henry, so what do you say to that? <laughs> I don't like it, that's all, I don't like it. <laughs> Again, this doesn't answer the question as, you know, that we're asking about civil disobedience and all that, but it, it does help frame the answer. This is not just an unqualified, oh, the government is always good even when it's not, okay? It's not. Now, the next point really gets down to what we all have to do. We have to, you can't read this passage in in isolation from everything else, all right? You, you've got you to read what else does the Bible say. But it is problematic when a passage seems to be going against everything else that the Bible says. <laughs> all right, so that's why I want to tell you, I don't think it is, and I'm just trying to give you some background that would suggest that the Romans would not have heard this, the Roman Christians would not have heard this in such a way, and Paul did not write it in that way. That's, that's all I'm suggesting at this point. So the second point is this, the Bible clearly teaches that we must obey God over everything and everyone else. Okay, that's just not, 
arguable. And um, sometimes obeying God requires civil disobedience. It's plain and simple in the scripture. Again, Paul was well aware of Daniel and his three friends who ended up in a fiery furnace, the friends, and he ended up in a lion's den. He's well aware of those stories. Why did they, why were, why did the, why did the king of Babylon try, the kings of Babylon try to kill them? Didn't want to, but because they broke the law. Daniel did it so publicly. He's like, I am going to break the law, which means I cannot pray to anyone but the king by praying in my window so everyone sees it. That's called civil disobedience. All right. Paul is well aware of Moses' mother defying the Pharaoh and saving Moses when the Pharaoh was concerned too many Jews and we need to kill, we've got to slow down their population growth, so kill all the babies. He was very likely aware of the experience of the apostles you know, about 20 years earlier than the writing of this. So he's had plenty of time to hear the stories. Uh, John, Peter and John uh, are preaching. They get pulled in by the Jerusalem authorities, and they say, stop doing that. And we have the answer in Acts chapter 4. Remember, Paul did not have the book of Acts, but he had probably heard this story. Then they called them uh, in again, the authorities, and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus, but Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. That's pretty pointed, but it gets even more pointed later in chapter 5. Peter and the apostles are pulled in again for preaching the gospel, and this is their response. Peter and the other apostles replied, we must obey God rather than human beings. All right, so uh, does Paul, I don't think Paul is disagreeing with that. I really don't. Uh, it's very likely that Paul is very much in that tradition. And there's no indication that Paul would have stopped preaching the gospel if it had become illegal. So I want to talk a little bit about protests and civil disobedience a little bit and kind of stretch it, talk about this a little bit more. If you end up agreeing with me that this passage doesn't demand unqualified obedience to the government or forbid all protests and civil disobedience, then the question is when are those measures called for and how should they be carried out, right? Uh, so this passage, Romans 13, doesn't, doesn't help us at all in that. It just doesn't really speak to it. But I want to suggest a few things. One is... Um, some people in reading the Bible might limit protesting or civil disobedience to cases that are directly parallel to biblical cases where that happens. All right? So let me, let me explain what I mean. Um, Daniel and his friends commit civil disobedience because they're told not to worship God, and they worship God. Okay? So that's very specific. Uh, Moses' mother is told to murder her own son. All right, so we can expand that a little bit by saying she's told to sin. All right, she's told you must sin, and she won't do that. And then uh, Peter, James, uh, Peter and John and then the apostles are pulled in for preaching the gospel 
and they say, we will continue to preach the gospel. So if you want to interpret this very narrowly, you can say, when you're told not to worship God, or told to worship another God, or when you're told to commit a sin, I'm not going to commit a sin because the government can't compel me to do it. I'm going to commit civil disobedience. And number three, when you're told not to preach the gospel. But if you narrow it that way, you understand um, you are eliminating what so many Christians did during the Nazi regime when they hid Jews to save their lives. It doesn't fit any of those. They're going out of their way to commit civil disobedience. They haven't been told, don't do this, do this. They've been told you can't do that, but not everybody is like compelled to hide someone in your home or get someone out of the country under false pretenses. But that's what they did, and they saved tens of thousands of Jews. So if you want to kind of take it really narrowly, you're going to have a lot of trouble saying that's justifiable. And if you want to say that's not justifiable, you can live with that one. Um, if you want to take this really narrowly, you probably have to say Rosa Parks was wrong for not following the authorities when they said, you must move from the front of the bus to the back of the bus if a white person comes in and can't find a seat in the front of the bus. Because it doesn't fit any of those definitions. And I want to just draw your attention to what Paul and the Apostle said in chapter 5. It said, we must obey God rather than human beings. That's a pretty broad statement, okay? That's not saying, hey, if you tell us not to preach, we are going to preach, okay? It's saying anytime you tell us to do something that goes against God or that we feel compelled by God to do something that is right and righteous and, just, and, and justified and an act of justice, we're going to obey God before we obey the government authorities. Number two, on protest and civil disobedience, remember that our governmental system is drastically different than Rome's. Uh, I think we would all agree with Lincoln's statement that we are a people, a government of the people, by the people, and for the people. We are participatory, democratic, republic. Nobody is above the law. No, no authority is above the law. It's written into our Constitution and our other laws. We have no king, no emperor that is considered sovereign, okay? The law is sovereign overall. And that certainly means that we have much more responsibility when it comes to holding the government accountable, advocating for justice. We actually have more responsibility. The, uh, the call and the ability to advocate and to even protest is written into our laws. It is legal in our system. So I've, I've listed a couple of resources in your outlines if you want to go into that a little bit further. So some takeaways from today, three really quick. Um, number one, I said this at the beginning, I just want to say it again. We're called to respect, honor, and pray for government authorities. And you can add to that, we're called to be good citizens who follow the laws. That's our call. Number two, if the government demands that God's and God's demands are at odds, do what God says. When you're going to oppose the government, 
do it with great discernment, thoughtfulness, and do it in a way that reflects the whole counsel of God, the whole Bible. All right. It's not easy. It's difficult determining it. We may not always agree, even within our own church. This is a time to call into account. This is a time to protest. We may not always agree, but we need to agree. We really do need to agree just under our governmental system and by what we see in Scripture that there are times to commit civil disobedience. And then finally, in a participatory system of government like the one that we have, we have an even greater responsibility to advocate for justice and hold authorities accountable for justice. Daniel had an opportunity that few people in history have ever had, something that we just take for granted. He had the ability to talk to power. And remember what he said again, therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. We're going to move into our um, time of response now in our service, our third movement of our service. I want to invite you to take out the packet for communion and get the bread ready. We'll eat together in a moment. The incredible thing is that the God who expects us to advocate and even to commit, in certain cases, civil disobedience, the God who is sovereign over all kings, came to earth and submitted his entire life, his body, everything, to wicked authorities. And he did it for a purpose. He did it so that we could be made right with him. So on the night he was betrayed, on the night he could have called a million angels to protect him, or just one angel with a really powerful sword, <laughs> right? He instead gave up his life. And he said, the reason I'm doing it is because I'm going to be broken, I'm going to spill my blood instead of you. I am going to pay for your sins. So we eat the bread, remembering that his body was broken for us. We drink from the cup remembering that this is his blood shed for the remission of sins. Father, we thank you for not only being a God of power, but a God who is willing to set aside his power. Help us to be discerning to know when we should set aside our power for the sake of something bigger and eternal and when we should know to stand up on behalf of others even if it costs us to do so. Help us to be a discerning people. Help us to be wise. Wise in how we read the scripture, how we understand it, how we live our lives among people who don't, many don't know you. Don't follow your word. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.